Section 23 of Uther and Igraine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle, West Orange, New Jersey, United States of America. Uther and Igraine by Warwick Deeping. Book 3, The War in Wales, Chapter 3. A man in black armour, a lady in a cloak of sables, a pine forest under a winter sky, myriad trunks interminably pillared, grey-black below, changing to red beneath the canopy of boughs, patches of grey-blue sky between, a floor overgrown with whortleberry and heather, and streaked seldom by the sun, through the treetops the variest sighing of a wind, a sound that crept up the curling galleries like the softly taken breath of a sleeping world. Away on every hand, oblivious vistas, black under multitudinous green spires. The woman's face seemed white under the sweep of her sable hood. Its expression was very purposeful, its mouth firm and resolute, its air indicative of a deliberate will. Her eyes stared into the wood over her horse's head with a constant care, dropping now and again a quick side glance at the man in black armour riding on her flank. She spoke seldom to him, and then with a certain assumption of authority that seemed to trouble his equanimity but little. Often she would lean forward in the saddle, as though to listen, her eyes fixed, her mouth decisive, her hand hollowed at her ear, to concavitate some sound other than the wind-song of the trees. It was evident that she was under the spell of some strong emotion, for she would smile and frown by turns as though vexed by perpetual alternatives of feeling. The man at her side watched with his grey eyes the path curling uphill between the trees. Having his own inward exposition of the woman's mood, he contented himself wisely with silence, keeping his reflections to himself. He was not a man who blurted commonplaces when lacking the means of inspiration, and he was satisfied with the fancy that he understood completely the things that were passing through the woman's mind. He believed her troubled by those extreme anxieties of the heart that come with war and the handiwork of the sword. Perhaps he was fortunate in being ignorant of the truth." The interminable trees seemed to vex the woman's spirit as their trunks crowded the winding track and shut the pair in as with a never-ending barrier. But for an occasional patch of heathland or scrub, no lengthy vista opened up before them. Tree boles stood everywhere to balk their vision, silent and stiff like sullen sentinels. The horses plodded on. Igraine's impatience could be read upon her face, and discovered in her slighter gestures. It was the impatience of a mind at war with itself, a mind prone through the chafe of trouble to be vexed with trifles, sore, sensitive, and hasty. Brastius watched her, pretending to be intent the while on the path that wandered away into the mazes of the wood. He was a considerate creature, and he suffered her petulance with a placid good humour, and a certain benevolence that was the outcome of pity. Igraine jerked her bridle and eyed the trees as though they were the members of a mob thrusting themselves between her and her purpose. She was inclined to be unreasonable, as only a woman can be on occasions. 
Brastius, calm-faced and debonair, contented himself with sympathy and refrained from reason as from the handling of a whip. That pleasant fellow was a liar, he said, by way of being companionable. Yes, the whelp. I'll swear we've ridden two leagues, not one. The fellow should have a stripe for every furlong. Rough justice, madam. Igraine laughed. If justice were done to liars, she said, the world would be hideless, scourged raw. Brastius edged his horse past an intruding tree and chuckled amiably. It would be a pity to spoil so much beauty. Eh? The women would come off worst. Igraine flashed a look at him. Balaam's ass spoke the truth, she said. They had not gone another furlong when Brastius reined in suddenly and stood listening. He held up a hand to Igraine, looking at her with prophetic face, his black armor lusterless under the trees. Hark! Igraine stared into his eyes. Neither moved a muscle for fully a minute. A trumpet cry. Brastius lowered his hand. From the host. End the advance, by the sound on it. Then we shall be out of the woods soon. Go warily, madame. It would be poor wisdom to stumble on an Irish legion. Brastius, I would not miss the day for a year in heaven. As they pushed uphill through the solemn shadows of the forest, a sound like the raging of a wind through a wood came down to them faintly from afar. It was a sullen sound, deep and mysterious as the hoarse babble of the sea, smitten through with the shrill scream of trumpets like the cry of gulls above a storm. In the alleys of the pine forest it was still as death and calm beneath the beniscus of the tall trees. Igraine and Brastius looked meaningly at each other as they rode. The sound needed no words to christen it. The two under the trees knew that they heard the roar of host breaking upon host, the cataractine thunder of a distant battle. Pushing on as fast as the forest suffered, the din became more definite, more human, more sinister in detail. It stirred the blood, challenged the courage, racked conjecture with the infinite chaos it portended. Victory and despair were trammeled up together in its sullen roar. Life and death seemed to swell it with the wind sound of their wings. It was stupendous, sonorous, chaotic, a tempest cry of steel and many voices merged into the grand underchant of war. Igraine's face kindled to the sound like the face of a girl who hears her lover's lute at night under her window. Blood fled to her brain with the wild strength of the strain humming like a wind through the trees. She was in the mood for war. The tragedy of it solemnized her spirit and made her look for the innumerable flash of arms, the rolling march of a multitude. For the moment it was life, and the glorious strength of it. Death and the dust were hid from sight. Yet another furlong, and the red trunks dwindled, and the sombre boughs fringed great tracks of blue, and to the north mountains rose up, dim and purple, under an umbrage of clouds. To the west the sea appeared, solemn and foamless, set with pine-spired isles and a great company of ships at anchor. Nigh the shore, the great pile of a walled town stood out upon green meadows. Igraine and the man pushed past the outlying thickets and drew rain upon a slope 
that ran gradually down from them like the great swell of a sea. Tented by the dome of the sky lay a natural amphitheatre, shelving towards the sea, but rising in the east by rolling slopes to a ridge that joined the mountains with the forest. The valley was a medley of wasteland, scrub, gorse, and thicket, traversed by the white streak of a road, and closed on the west by the grey walls of the town rising up above the green. It was a wild spot enough. However still and solitary it may have seemed in its native desertedness, however much the haunt of the wolf and the boar, it seethed now like a cauldron with the boiling stir of battle. Men swarmed through scrub and thicket, masses of steel moved hither and thither, met, mingled, broke, and rallied. Wave rushed on wave, bodies of horsemen smoked over the open with flashing of many colours and the glittering pomp of mail, to roll with clanging trumpets into some vortex of death. The whole scene was one shifting mass of steel and strife, dust and disorder, galloping squadrons, rolling spears, rank on rank of shields a flicker in the sun. And from this whirlpool of humanity rose the dull, grinding roar of war, fierce, stupendous, clamorous, grand. To the trained eye of the soldier, the chaos took orderly and intelligent meaning, and Brasti stood in his stirrups and pointed out to Egrain the main ordering of the hosts. Uther Pendragon held the eastern ridge with his knights and levies. Gilomanius and Pacentius thrust up at him from the sea, while the valley between held the wreck of the countercharges of either host, and formed debatable ground where troop ran against troop and man against man. The masses of Uther's army swept away along the ridge, their arms glittering over the green slopes, their banners and surcoats colouring the height into a terraced garden of war, the whole a solemn streak of gold against the blue bosoms of the hills. To the north stood Meliogrant with his levies from Wales, and next to him Duke Eldul and King Nentris headed the men of Flavia Caesariensis. South of all the great banner of Tintagel showed where Golois and the southern levies reared up their spears like a larch wood in winter. Brastius pointed them all out to the girl in turn, keeping keen watch the while on the shifting mob of mail in the valley. Igraine, stirred by the scene, urged on from the forest, and the night following her, they crossed some open scrubland, wound through a thicket of pines, and stood at gaze under the boughs. Igraine's eyes were all the while turned on the banner of Tintagel, and from the common mob of mailed figures she could isolate a knight in gilded harness on a white horse, Gorlois, her husband. The mere sight of him set her hate blazing in her heart, and seemed to pageant out all the ills she had suffered at his hands. Her feud against the man was a veritable insanity, a species of melancholia that wrapped all existence in the morbid twilight of self-centred bitterness. As she looked down upon the host, there was a kind of overmastering madness of malice on her face, an emotion whose very intensity paled her to the lips and made her eyes hard and scintillant as crystal. She was discreet for all her violence of soul. Turning to Brastius, who was scanning the valley under his hand, she pointed to the banner with a restless eagerness of manner that might have hinted at her solicitude for Gorlois, her lord. "'See yonder,' she said, "'is not that the Lord Gorlois on the white horse by yonder standard?' 
Brastius turned his glance thither, considered for a moment, and then agreed decisively. Love is quick of eye, he said with a smile. Let us ride down nearer. I care not for the hazard, madame. Who fears at such a season? By my sword, madame, not your servant. I am but careful of your safety. Fear for me, Brastius, when I fear for myself. Methinks, madame, that would be never. Brastius, I believe you. Igraine's courage had risen to too high an imperiousness for the moment to brook baffling or to endure restraint. She had been lifted out of herself, as it were, by the storm cry of battle and by the splendour of the scene spread out before her eyes. A furlong or more down the hillside, a little hillock stood up amid a few wind-twisted thorns, proffering rare vantage for outlook over wood and dale. She was away like a flash, and several lengths ahead before Brastius had roused up, put spur to horse, and cantered after her. The man saw the glint of her horse's hinder hooves spurning the sod, and though the wind whistled about his ears, he was left well in the rear for all his spurring. Igraine, with her hair agleam under her tossed-back hood, and her cheeks ruddied by the wind, headed for the rising ground at a gallop, gained it, and drew rein on the very verge of a small cliff that dropped sheer to the flat below. The hillock was like a natural pulpit, its front face a perpendicular stone twenty feet high, while its hinder slope tailed off to merge into the hillside. Gorlois's mailed masses stood but a hundred paces away, and Igraine could see him clearly in his gilded harness under the banner of Tintagel. Brastius galloped up to her with a mild bluster of expostulation. You caught danger, madame. What if I do, Brastius, to be near my lord? Your sanctity lies upon my conscience. I take all such care from you. Madame, that is impossible. Duty is duty both night and day, in battle and in peace. Duty bids me fear for my lord's wife. Igraine found certain logic invincible in the argument and made good use of it. She meant to rule Brastius for her own ends. Fear, she said. I forget fear when I am nigh Gorlois, my husband, and who could gainsay me the right of watching over him? I forget fear when I think of Britain, the king, and my lord, and had I a hundred lives, I could cast them down to help to break the heathen and serve my country. Amen, said Brastius, signing the cross upon his breast. Sterner interests quashed any further polite bickerings that might have risen from Igraine's pride of purpose. Brastius, with the instinct of a soldier, marked some large development in the struggle that had been passing in the valley below them. The scattered lines of horse and foot that had been thrown forward by Uther to try the strength and spirit of the Irish host were falling back sullenly uphill before the masses of attack poured up from the flats by Gilomanius the king. The whole battle had shifted to the east. Bodies of horse were spurring uphill, driving in Uther's men, cutting down stragglers, harrowing the slopes for the solid march of the black columns of foot that were creeping up between the thickets, winding like giant dragons amid firs and scrub. It was a grand sight enough, the advance of a great host, a rocking sea of spears pouring up in the lull that had fallen over the valley, as though the battle took breath and waited. 
Uther's men kept their ground upon the ridge, watching in silence the advance of Gilomanius's chivalry. Only a brief wild cry of trumpets betokened the gathering of the waves of war. Even at this juncture, Brastius racked his wit and courtesy to persuade Gorlois's lady to fall back and watch from the shelter of the woods. He pointed out her peril to Igraine, besought, argued, cajoled, threatened. All he gained was a blunt but half-smiling declaration from the woman that she would hold to her post on the hillock till the battle was over or some mischance drove her from the place. Brastius caught her bridle, spurred round, and tried to drag her back by main force, but she was out of the saddle in stanter and obstinate as ever. In the end the man capitulated and gave his concern to the fortunes of war. The sudden uproar that sounded out along the hillside made mere individual need dull and impossible for the moment. The shock of the joining of the hosts had come like the fall of snow from a mountain, a sound sweeping down the valley, echoing among the silent fastnesses of the hills. Men had come pike to pike, shield to shield, upon the ridge. Mass rushed upon mass, billow upon billow. From the mountains to the forest, the sweat and thunder of strife rolled up from the long line of leaping steel, from the living barrier, steady as a cliff. It was one of the many marathons of the world, where barbarism clawed at the antique fabric of the past. Igraine's glance was stayed on Gorlois and the southern levies about the banner of Tintagel. Her hate surged up the green slope with the onrush of the Irish horde, and brandished on the charge in spirit towards the tall figure in the harness of gold. She saw Gorlois in the press, smiting right and left with the long sweep of his sword. In her thirst for his destruction, she grudged him strength, harness, sword, the very shield he bore. She was glad of his courage, for such would militate against him. Moment by moment, her desire honoured him with death, as she thought him doomed to fall beneath the surge of steel. A sudden shout from Brastius brought her stare from this chaos of swords. The man was standing in his stirrups and pointing to the west with his face dead white and his mouth agape. By God, look! Truth to tell, there was little need of the warning. A dull rumble of hoofs came up like thunder above the shriller din around. Igraine, looking to the west, saw a black mass of horsemen at the gallop, swaying, surging, rocking uphill, full for Golois's flank. The sight numbed her reason for the moment. She was still as stone as the column swept past the very foot of the hillock, a flood of steel, and plunged headlong upon Golois's lines, hewing and trampling to the very banner of Tintagel. An oath from Brastius made her turn and look at him. He had his hand on his sword, and his face was twisted into a snarl of wrath and shame as he stood in his stirrups and watched the fight. "'My God!' he cried. "'My God! They run!' It was palpable enough that the southern line was breaking and crumbling ominously before the rush of Gilomanius's knights. Little bunches of men were breaking away from the main mass like smoke and falling back over the ridge. Igraine guessed at Brastius's pride and fury, saw her chance of liberty, and took it. She set up a shrill cry that stirred his courage like a trumpet cry. "'My lord! My lord Corlois! Brastius, what of him?' The man's sword had flashed out. "'Send me to death, lady, only to strike a blow for Britain!' 
Igraine spread her hands to him like a Madonna and made the sign of the cross in the air. Brastius lifted up his drawn sword, kissed it, and saluted her with the look of a hero. Then he wheeled his horse, plunged down from the hillock, and rode full gallop into the battle. Igraine soon lost sight of his black harness in the melee, and since he met his death there, she saw Brastius alive no more. Despite the grim uproar of the overthrow, despite the taunts of a patriot pride, there was an undercurrent of gladness through her thought as she watched Gorlois's men giving ground upon the ridge. Her lord's shame was her gratification. To such a pitch of passion was she tuned that she could find laughter for the occasion, and a shrill cry of joy that startled even her own ears when the banner of Tintagel quivered and went down into the dust. Men were falling like leaves in autumn, and the southern wing of Uther's host seemed but a rabble, trampled, overridden, herded, and smitten over the ridge. Everywhere the swords and spears of Gilomanius's knights and Galloglasses spread rout and panic, while the wavering mass gave ground, rallied, gave again, and streamed away in flight over the hillside. She could see no sign of Gorlois, and with a whimper of hate the strong doubt of his escaping the slaughter took hold on her heart, and found ready welcome there. She was rid of Brastius, good fellow that he was, and though she honoured him, she loved liberty better. Liberty enough! Gorlois her lord had been slain. Such were her reflections for the moment. Pendragon's host seemed threatened with overthrow. The southern wing had been driven off the field by a charge of horse. Gilomanius held the southern portion of the ridge, and pressed hard on Meliogrant, both flank and face. The imminent need of Britain was plain enough even to Igraine, yet a sense of calm and liberty had come upon her, like the song of birds or the gush of green in springtide. Even her patriotism seemed dim and unreal for the moment, before the treasonable gratitude that watched the overthrow of Gorlois's arms. She was alone at last, solitary among thousands, able after the bitterness of past months to pluck peace from the very carnage of battle, Trouble had so wrought upon her mind that it seemed a negation of all probable and natural sentiment, a contradiction of the ethical principles of sense. The day was fast passing, and the grand fires of a winter sunset were rolling all the caverns of the west into a blaze of gold and scarlet. The pine forest, black and inscrutable as night, stood with its spines like ebony to the fringe of the west, while the slanting light lit the glimmering masses of steel on the hill and valley with a web of gold. To the north the mountains towered in a mystery of purple, a gleam of amber transient on their peaks. Sudden and shrill came a cry of trumpets from the hills, a sinister sound that seemed to issue in the climax of the last phase of a tragedy. Igraine's eyes were turned northwards to the green slopes of the higher ground, where the great banner of the golden dragon had flapped over Uther the king. Here, a great company of knights, the flower of the host, had stood inactive throughout the day. With a cry of trumpets, this splendid company had moved down to charge the masses of Gilomanius's men, who now filled the shallow valley east of the ridge and threatened King Meliogrant and the whole host with overthrow. Uther had ridden out to lead the charge with his own sword, it was one of those perilous hours when some great deed was needed to grapple victory from defeat. 
The rest of the scene seemed blotted out as Egraine watched from her hillock the glittering mass rolling downhill with the evening sun striking flame from its thousand points of steel. On over the green slopes, past the pavilions of the camp, it gathered like a wave lifting its crest against a rock, on towards the swarm of men squandered in pursuit of Gorlois's broken line, on to where Gilomanius formed his knights for the charge. The green space dwindled and dwindled with the rush and roar of the nearing gallop. Igraine saw the rabble of Saxons, light-armed kerns, and Irish gallow-glasses split and crack like a crumbling wall. For a short breath the black mass held, with Uther's storm of mail cleaving cracks and wedges in it, streaks of tawny colour like lava through the vineyards and gardens of a village. Then, as by magic, the whole mass seemed to deliquesce, to melt, to become as mist. All visible was a thunderstorm of horsemen, tearing like wind through a film of rain, with scattering fringes of cloud scudding swiftly to the west. The knights had passed the valley, and were riding up the slope, hewing, trampling, crushing as they came. Gilomanius's columns that had pushed Gorlois's men into rout had become a rabble in turn, wrecked, scattered to the wind, trodden down in blood and dust. They were streaming away in flight over the ridge, scampering for scrub and thicket, no lust in them save the lust of life. Igraine saw them racing past on every quarter, a blood-specked, dust-covered herd, their hairy faces panting for the west and the ships on the beach. Not a hundred paces away came the line of trampling hoofs and swinging swords, a demonic whirlwind of iron wrath that hunted, slew, and gave no quarter. Beyond the summit of the ridge and all about the hillock where Igraine stood, the glittering horde of knights came to a halt with a great shout of triumph. Right beneath Igraine and the straight face of the hillock, a man in red armor on a black horse, with a golden dragon on his helmet, stood out some paces before the ranks of the splendid company. A great cry rolled up. A forest of swords shook in the sun. The knight on the black horse stood in his stirrups, and with sword and helmet upstretched in either hand, lifted his face to the red triumph fire of the west. Igraine knew him. Peleus, Uther, the king. End of Book 3, The War in Wales, Chapter 3 Recording by Michelle, West Orange, New Jersey.